As we begin our time in God's Word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the blessings that we've already enjoyed in worship as we've uh, read from your Word, as we've uh, sung praises to you and built up one another through those songs, and as we've prayed for one another, Lord, we know that in each way you bless us and that you call us to greater service to you. And Lord, I pray that as we open your Word to study deeply from it today, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the truth of this. Lord, we know that we can only understand by the power of your spirit and his work to awaken us and to uh, give us new birth. And Lord, I pray that 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 very thing would happen today uh, for maybe someone who has not professed faith in you, maybe someone who thinks that they just have a good heart and that's all they need. Lord, I pray that you would use the truth of your gospel to call them to faithfulness and to uh, call them to faith in you. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be back in our study in the Beatitudes. We took a a few weeks break from the study in the Beatitudes for our homecoming season, if you will call it, I feel like I should call it that. There's a season of about three weeks there where we're just totally focused on revival and and homecoming. And quite frankly, I needed uh, to be able to go back to the well of my old sermons and use those (laughs) instead of having uh, having to study for a new sermon during the midst of Uh, Five Nights of Revival and all of that. So we took a break to look at the promises of God in the Old Testament and to to understand that God's grace is the reason that we are able to approach Him. And that's important because we've uh, we've been, as we've worked through the Beatitudes, uh, we began to see, as we went through the first few Beatitudes, we saw that uh, the kingdom of God comes for those who are poor and oppressed and uh, downtrodden. Uh, But as we've gone through these Beatitudes, they sort of seem to shift from a focus on God's grace to works. And like I said, to start with, it seemed that the announcement of the kingdom of God would come on the broken and the oppressed. And we saw that the kingdom of God comes for the poor in spirit. It comes for the broken, those who are broken over their sins. Uh, for those who are humble and confess their need for God and those who thirst for uh, righteousness and thirst for the righteousness of God. But in verse 7, with the last beatitude that we looked at, it seems that God or Jesus begins to place conditions on the blessings of God. As after all, the, the uh, beatitude in verse 7 begins by saying, Blessed are the merciful... For they will receive mercy. But there's a truth that I've harped on time and again as we've worked our way through the Beatitudes. And that is that the Beatitudes are not independent qualities that a saved person will have. In other words, uh, these are not characteristics or behaviors that we have to collect in order to be saved. Like we have to... Uh, find a way to be poor in spirit, or we have to find a way to be humble, or we have to find a way to mourn. But rather, these are more like la- uh, rungs on a ladder of salvation. That is more of a picture of the way that salvation happens in the life of someone who comes to trust in Jesus Christ. So we start with Uh, We start at the bottom of this ladder, if you will, with simple confession and repentance. We are poor in spirit. And we move up from that confession of sin 
to humbly uh, acknowledge that God is our uh, source of life and that we, hu- we, we come humbly and we grieve our sin. And in a, as a result of that, God comforts us with his grace. And this grace causes us to desire righteousness, and uh, we desire that above all else. And as a result of that desire, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And because of that righteousness we receive through Jesus Christ, and because of our faith in Him, we now are merciful to others because we have received mercy through Jesus Christ. So we have to, again... As we come to this beatitude today, we have to hold on to that concept of the idea of a ladder of salvation as we read from Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And so let's read together Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, and see this beatitude before us today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, there are two questions in my mind that come out of that statement of Jesus Christ. Two questions that I want to answer today. One is, what does it mean to have a pure heart? And second, what does it mean to see God? So first, we need to ask, what does it mean to have a pure heart? Now, in asking that question, I want to dispel two myths about the heart or about having a pure heart. First of all, there's a very popular myth in our day, a very popular belief in our day, that God is going to save everyone who has a, quote, good heart. And you might hear someone at a funeral, I hear it all the time since I do funerals, um, uh, I hear it quite often, that you might hear someone at a funeral that says something like, well, he lived a hard life, but he had a good heart, right? Uh, by that, I think what we mean, we, uh, we tend to mean two things by that. One is that the person had good intentions, right? So I hear people say all, all the time, well, preacher, I have a good heart. You know, I may be rough, but I have a good heart. And I think what they mean by that when they tell me that is that I have good intentions. I don't do those good intentions, but I have them. You know, it's like the saying, uh, the, the, the saying that uh, it's the thought that counts. You know, it's not the gift, it's the thought that counts. Well, try telling that to your wife when she, you've forgotten her anniversary. You know, it doesn't work. Uh, I, I hate to tell you that. By experience, I can tell you it doesn't work. Um, well, just because you have good intentions doesn't mean that you're good. I mean, we want to do good things all the time. We don't do them. And so it doesn't mean that we're good just because we have good intentions. So to have a good heart, to have good intentions, doesn't save you. Uh, The other thing that we might mean is that the person at their core is kind and thoughtful. You know, I've, I've heard people say, you know, this guy, he was mean as a snake at work. But boy, if you saw him around your kids, it would really change your perspective of him. Well, in reality... We could probably say that about anyone, right? There are a group of people that everyone has to whom that person is nice. It might be their mama, it might be their daddy, it might be their kids, it might be their co-workers, it might be their drinking buddies. But to some people, everyone has a, a group of people that they would view as being nice or kind to, right? 
I mean, if we were to say that about everyone, surely everyone is going to be saved because everyone at their core has good intentions or has kind thoughts towards some people or is thoughtful towards other people. After all, I'm sure that Eva Braun, the fiance of Adolf Hitler, would say that Adolf had a good heart. But I don't think anybody else thought he did. But understand that niceness will not save you. If you don't take any other note, take that one. Niceness will not save you. Having good intentions or having good thoughts or having good purposes in life will not save you. Niceness is not the same thing as purity. When Jesus speaks about having a pure heart or being pure in heart, he is drawing on the Levitical laws regarding cleanness. The ceremonial laws of the Old Testament have very strict rules regarding cleanness or purity. And these laws bore down on the most minute details of daily life, from how we wash our hands to sexual relations and everything in between. To fail in one of these precepts would mark you as unclean. In some cases, that uncleanness could be purified by certain sacrificial rituals in the temple. But in other cases, as in the case of contracting leprosy, you could never be made clean. Once you got it, you had it, and you would die with it, and you could never come back into the temple again. You could never approach God in worship again. So that brings me to the second myth that I'd like to dispel. Now, some hold the belief that one can purify himself through ritual. That if we just go through the right motions, then our heart will follow. Or better yet, there are some who believe that it's the right behavior that matters, that that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what you think or what you feel as long as you don't act on those thoughts. Dennis Prager, who is a, a popular conservative commentator, has suggested that the very, uh, suggested this very thing as it relates to pornography and pedophilia, saying that it doesn't matter what you think in terms of lust, but only what you do. Now, this was the view held by the Pharisees in Jesus' day. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus makes a bold statement. He says, It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Now, when he said that, his disciples recognized immediately. They, they actually shushed him. And they said, Jesus, don't say that. The Pharisees are going to get offended by what you're saying. And, of course, Jesus, being who he was, and I think apparently Jesus was a skipper because we tend to do this too, Jesus just doubles down. He doesn't apologize. He just doubles down. And he explains that, Nothing we take into our body can defile us because it's just food. It just passes through the body and we're done with it. But he says in verse 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now, I want you to catch that 
Again, what Jesus is saying here is revolutionary to the Jewish mind. Jews to this day, as I mentioned, Dennis Prager is a Jew. And Jews to this day do not believe that it is the thoughts that affect your morality and your, your um, behavior or your standing before God. But what Jesus is saying is revolutionary to the Jewish mind. You see, murder doesn't start with our hands, but in a heart that is full of hate. Adultery doesn't start in the bedroom, but with a heart that is full of lust. Theft doesn't start with a broken window, but with a heart that is full of greed. Gossip and slander don't start with wagging tongues, but with a heart that is full of jealousy and covetousness. But while Jesus' teaching was revolutionary for his day, it was not new. The Old Testament had been telegraphing, broadcasting from the very beginning that there was a serious problem with the human heart. If you look up the first time that the word, the Hebrew word for heart is ever used in the Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says that this is what God says about man. It says, every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Something obviously broke with the fall of Adam. Brothers hate and kill, warlords rape and pillage, and every boundary of God's good creation is violated. Now we can make the mistake of reading God's rescue of Israel and his giving of the law as a sort of reset. We might think, okay, well, God's going to take this nation and he's going to give them his law directly from his mouth. And so surely things will get better. And at first, that does seem to be the intention. After all, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Moses calls the Israelites to love the Lord your God with all your what? Your heart, your soul, and your might. Numerous times throughout the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses calls the people of Israel to guard their heart and to circumcise their hearts. Yet later on in the book, the tone changes. And Moses began, he stopped saying that they should guard their hearts and circumcise their hearts, but he starts warning them. And he says, "Don't, don't raise up a king. Don't go after the other nations. And then he begins to prophesy and he says, you're going to do this. And when you do it, eventually there will come a nation that will conquer you and take you off into captivity for your idolatry. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses changes from calling his people to love the Lord their God with all their heart to saying this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Here's the grand message of the Old Testament and the answer to our first question. You see, no amount of law keeping or behavioral modification or ritual cleansing can give you a pure heart. If you are to have a pure heart, God must give it to you. 
And this brings me to my second question. What does it mean to see God? To answer that, flip over with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first eight verses of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here we have this famous meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus has an obvious burden on his heart. And we don't know exactly what this burden is because Jesus answers him before he ever asks a question. But based on Jesus' answer... I think we can guess what it is that Nicodemus is going to ask. Nicodemus wants to know the very thing that the Beatitudes are aimed at. He wants to know how someone can receive the kingdom of God. How is it that I can be a part of this kingdom that you are ushering in? And I want you to notice in verse 3 how Jesus answers this question, this Supposed question that Nicodemus is going to ask. In verse 3 it says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now I want to suggest that this statement is an expansion of what Jesus has told us in this beatitude that we're studying today. I want you to notice it sounds actually very similar. In, in Matthew chapter 5 verse 8, we hear that the pure in heart can see God. And in, uh, in John chapter 3, verse 3, we read that it is those who are born again that will see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus wants to know, okay, now uh, Nicodemus being the good Pharisee, and as was their want, he wants to know, well, how can I be born again? Notice Jesus' answer in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In other words, new birth is not something that a man or a woman can do. Now, I, won't, I, I, I do this with all humility, but, and I hate to disagree with the late, great Billy Graham, who wrote a book titled, How to Be Born Again. But there is no how-to manual for the new birth. 
There's no five-step program. There's no ritual that you can go through. There's no amount of law-keeping that you can do. It is only by the work of God that, it, that causes a new birth that we have this pure heart that God commands us to have. And catch this. It is only those who are born of the Spirit who will see the kingdom of God. It is only those who have a pure heart given to them by God, who, where God has come in and circumcised their hearts, who has changed their hearts to desire the things of God. It is only those who will be a part of the kingdom of God. That is the point that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. And it is the point that he is making here in John chapter 3, verse 6. The law keeper will not see God. The traditionalist will not see God. The conservative will not see God. The progressive will not see God. Only those who have been changed by the power of God through the work of His Spirit and the power of His gospel will see God. It is only those who have been made pure by the true and pure one, Jesus Christ, who will see the kingdom of God. So friend... Do you have a sense of your unworthiness before God? Does the weight of your guilt burden you? Do you long to be righteous? Do you long to see God? That sense of unworthiness and that longing for God is not something natural in you. It is the work of the Spirit that is giving you new birth. If you sense that yearning for the things of God, won't you come forward today as we sing this closing hymn and confess that need to the church and confess your faith in Jesus Christ? Won't you follow Jesus Christ in baptism and, make, uh, and commit your life to Him today? Brothers and sisters, a pure heart is not attainable apart from the work of God's Spirit. Now, that truth should inform us in two ways as believers. First of all, it should inform our understanding of our lost friends and family members, and it should inform our own actions. In saying that, uh, in, to start with, I want to point out that when we approach our lost friends and family members, we need to understand that we will not save them by giving them the law. In saying that, I'm not saying that uh, we should not speak the truth about the evils of this world. But what I'm saying is if you think that you're going to straighten out your friend and you're going to make him a moral person and that that in some way is going to save him, then you are starting in the wrong place. They need to hear the gospel. It is only the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And it is not until their heart is changed that they will start to understand and to live by the law of God. Now, with our own actions, we have to acknowledge daily that we need the purity of God's spirit to make us pure. Yes, obedience is important. Yes, ritual and tradition are important. But those things are important not because they create a pure heart, but because they should be done with a pure heart. The pure heart is what God expects. And the deeds come after that.
And so we as believers should start our day seeking the purity that only God's spirit can bring. So may we leave this place living in the purity of heart that God has created in us through his gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of this beatitude and the fact that you, through your son, have given us a pure heart by the work of your spirit. Lord, we know that's not something that we can attain. It's not something that we can work towards. It is something that only you can give by your good grace. And Lord, I pray that there would be someone here today who is being made alive by the truth of your gospel and that you would draw that person forward to uh, confess that faith and to follow you in baptism. Father, I pray for those of us who are believers today that we would leave dependent on you, that we would depend on you for purity, that we would depend on you for our life, that we would depend on you and your gospel in uh, going to others as we share the gospel with others. Lord, may we live out this purity in our daily lives and may we be faithful to depend on you for it. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.